Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good afternoon. Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. And I will be joined momentarily by Kathleen Martin. But before we get there, I wanted to make a couple of comments. Um, there's been a great deal of discussion about Jacques Vallée's participation in Trinity, the best kept secret. And while I hesitate to provide uh, additional publicity for the book, which I think is absolutely terrible, uh, I did want to make note of the fact that I had a great deal of respect for the work that Jacques Vallée had done during his career in ufology. And among the first books I ever bought and read about UFOs were his um, Anatomy of a Phenomenon and his Challenge to Science. And I've got most of his other books as well. So I was a little disappointed in that book, and I, but I wanted to make it clear that uh, it's the disappointment in the investigative endeavor and the information that was presented without much in the way of corroboration that worried me greatly. And I wanted to make that clear before we moved on to other things. So uh, there you have it. It's, if you're interested in my critique of the book, you can find it at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Now, as I said, I'm going to be joined here by Kathleen Martin who is a researcher and investigator of UFOs in contact with non-humans and author of several professionally published books. I love that term, professionally published books. A featured on-camera commentator and an international lecturer. I think she beats me on that one because I don't think I've done any international lecturing except one or two times. She earned a BA degree in social work and was employed as an educator and education services coordinator while attending graduate school. Her interest in UFOs and contact began in 1961 when her aunt and uncle Barney and Betty Hill had a close encounter and subsequent abduction in New Hampshire's White Mountains. Since 1990, she has worked to uncover the truth about UFOs, their occupants, the humans that they interact with, and the U.S. government's involvement in the UFO problem. Her research trips to archival collections and her investigation of case after case of contact with non-humans has given her a depth of knowledge that few possess. She has worked on three uh, social work research projects with nearly 5,000 experiencers. Kathleen Martin, welcome again to A Different Perspective. 
Well, thank you, Kevin. Good to be back with you. I, I believe the last time you were on, we were in Roswell, New Mexico, talking about alien abduction, if I remember correctly. So it's been yes. way too long. Yes, that is correct. Your memory is the same as mine. <laughs> <laughs> what inspired me to contact you was um, a note, I guess, from, I was going to say New Page Book, but they're now something else. I forget the name of the publisher. Red Wiser. Pardon me? Red Wheel Wiser. They're still new yeah. page books, but they're a subsidiary of Red Wheel Wiser. Yes, I know. And I've got contracts with them, too. And that my book, uh, UFOs in the Deep State, just came out from them. So the fact okay. I couldn't remember the name of the publishers, probably something they don't want to hear about. Anyway, <laughs> uh, according to them, you had an updated version of your book, Captured, which dealt with Barney and Betty Hill. Yes. And I wonder what new information that you had um, that we might not know. Well, there has been a great deal of research done by me and scientific uh, investigation and uh, laboratory analysis of evidence that we did not have in 2005 and 6 when we were completing the book that was published in 2007. So this is an update of the scientific evidence that has been uh, collected and uh, or s scientific studies that have been done uh, since that time. So there's quite a lot of new evidence in uh, a chapter in the book. I have some new photographs in there. Uh, the state of New Hampshire erected a historical marker to commemorate the event. There's a photograph of that, and I talk about that in the book too. But uh, certainly I can't reveal to you all of the new findings, but I can give you a taste of some of the new findings. Um, well, you, under, you understood. I was going to have to ask about the, the scientific findings and, and what you've learned. So I kind of expected at least a little bit of uh, okay. information about that. So I have a little bit of information that I can share with you. Um, when I uh, met with Ben Hansen at the University of New Hampshire uh, more than a year ago, we turned Betty's dress inside out and we started to examine the uh, spots on the dress. We'd already had, Phyllis Budinger had uh, sent samples off from the back of the dress and those ended up being spider blood. So we didn't know uh, if this was going to be spider wait, wait. blood or what. You say, you're saying spider blood? Yes. Like on the arachnids. Back of the dress. Yes, yeah, so it was nothing okay. uh, nothing significant in the first DNA analysis regarding spots on the lining of the dress. But in this analysis, we noticed that there uh, appeared to be what might have been blood spots in the general area of where Betty's navel would be. And, of course, you remember that Betty reported and relived under hypnosis that uh, a needle was inserted into her navel, causing a great deal of pain. And this was before we were using amniocentesis in a hospital setting. So um, what we did is uh, I cut out uh, a sample from that, we photographed it, put down uh, coins next to it to uh, 
measure the size, and then I sent it off to the Mutual UFO Network's uh, biological laboratory. And um, Lynn Mann is the name of the scientist who did the DNA analysis. And what she determined is that the sample could have been just too old to identify it as Betty's blood. Now, it could have been blood, but even the sample of the disk of Betty's blood could no longer be identified as blood. I, we had kept a sample from before her death in 2004. But what she did find is that it was Betty's DNA. So uh, that is uh, a little bit of evidence that perhaps Betty's statement about the needle in the navel procedure was true. And, you know, not confabulated under hypnosis. Well, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you expect her DNA to be on her dress? Um, not necessarily in the way that it was. No, not, not in terms of um, in that particular area of her dress. It would not have just, it wouldn't have been vomit. It wouldn't have been spit. It, it wouldn't have been urine. It's the, the placement of it in that part of her dress. But wouldn't uh, the dress rubbing up against her skin, uh, wouldn't that maybe explain the, the DNA being there? Well, we'd have to compare it to DNA from, to see if there was DNA from other parts of that dress. But this has been the scientific analysis that was done. But there was never any question that it was Betty Hill's dress. So No, it wasn't a question that it was Betty's dress, but it was fluid from Betty's body. Okay. And that suggests that there had been a needle inserted into her navel at some point while she was wearing that dress. Yes, because of the location okay. of, the, of the stain on the dress. But that doesn't necessarily get us to the extraterrestrial. Mm. If you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you cannot prove from that. But Kevin, you have always been one who has said it is the preponderance of evidence that counts. Not one piece of evidence, one little piece of evidence, but is the mass of evidence, the accumulation of evidence. And that's what I look for as an investigator and as a researcher, because I, I seriously doubt that we're going to have one piece of scientific evidence evidence that is going to prove to every scientist in the world that UFOs are real or that uh, ET contact is real or UFO abduction. When you were doing your research, the latest research in the book, did you uh, come to something that might have led us toward that uh, extraterrestrial something a little bit uh, a little bit more than just you know, the stains on the dress. And I don't mean to belittle that. It's just the way the question is being formed here. But I just there, wonder if there was something something a little bit more that you found as well. Yes, yes. There um, was a study of the symbols that Betty remembered observing on the craft that she had sketched for me during my investigation of her case. And uh, also... We found a letter that Stanton Friedman had written to John Luttrell, the 
reporter from the Boston Traveler who broke the Hill story as the result of a violation of confidentiality in 1965. And John Luttrell wrote that he had interviewed 12 to 14 witnesses to the craft in the same time frame on the same night in the same location where Betty and Barney observed the craft. So that's all I'm going to say. There's a lot more, but we well, now gonna, have witnesses. Do we, do we have names of those witnesses? Were, the, were we able to, or I say, shouldn't say we, were you able to contact uh, any of the witnesses to corroborate that information? The problem was that John had left the, the traveler and he said that his, his files were destroyed. So we were not able to get the, the names of the witnesses, and he was not willing to do anything because at that time he was working as a hospital administrator, and he refused to become involved in this again, even though he was the one who uh, revealed it to the public as the result of a violation of confidentiality, which I'm not pleased about, but I... Uh, I think the one redeeming quality that I can attribute to him is the fact that he did interview these individuals. Now, let, I've let, interviewed Let me break in here because I have a question I, I don't quite understand. Uh, the letter was written back in the early 1960s, right after this event, uh, and it went to Stan Friedman? It was written in 1976 when Stanton was doing an investigation of okay. all of this. It was written to John Luttrell, and that's what he stated, and uh, he told, asked Stanton not to reveal that information, and so I've just recently acquired that information before Stanton's death. Well, the reason I asked that question is because when I was, what, what inspired my work on the, uh, the uh, Socorro case was Ben Moss had said that uh, three people had called time frame, and of course it turns out they weren't, but there was a letter in the Project Blue Book files from uh, Captain Richard Holder, written on the night of the landing, where he said three people had called the police station, so we were able to corroborate that statement, but once again, we don't know who those three people were, because nobody bothered to keep the, uh, to write down the names, because they didn't think much of it, and that was why I was kind of wondering when that letter was written, and how it might uh, reflect the whole sighting uh, here. Uh, we will be back right after this. We're talking to Kathleen Arden about the Barney and Betty Hill case, and new information is coming out from that, and we'll have more information uh, coming up right after this, so please stick around. listening to a different perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I'm here with Kathleen Martin. And when I say here, we're at least in the same country, not necessarily in the same state or the same city, 
we are practicing social distancing, although it seems that uh, we don't need to do that quite as much as we used to. We've been talking about her book, Captured, which uh, I was updated. I was going to say just reissued, but was updated with additional information. And we were discussing a little bit of that uh, moments before we went to break. Uh, one of the things that has bothered me about the abduction, and I've mentioned this to you, Kathleen, before, is the star map. And the reason I bring that up again, as usual, I know that uh, Marjorie Fish did what I think of as a Herculean task in attempting to identify the star system that may be the point of origin for the, the alien creatures. It was Zeta-1, Zeta-2 reticuli, which is the double star a system about 37.5 light years away uh, from, from Earth. And when Marjorie Fish did her analysis, she left out all the red dwarf stars, figuring that there's so many of them, there would be nothing of great interest to a spacefaring race, which I think may have been a, a mistake in her assumptions, but I can understand why she'd do that, because there are so many of them, and it would have cluttered up the whole thing. So she concentrated on stars that are more in the spectral class of the sun, suspecting life would uh, evolve on the planets around, around those stars. But the star catalogs have been updated, and some of the stars she used are now more distant than she anticipated or are closer than they anticipated. And so I wonder, uh, Kathleen, has any new work been done on attempting to... Uh, make sure the star map is properly oriented or maybe there's a, a another better match for it well uh several years ago now it was uh oh around 200 and 2015 maybe or even before that there was an astrophysicist who remained would not reveal his or her identity <laughs> who was in touch with stanton friedman and this individual did an update on the star map with an emphasis on uh, exoplanets and discovered that Marjorie Fish's identification was the closest, even today, to Betty's star map. Uh, and she discovered that now Betty's star map is 85% accurate. So well, that's the update. What do you mean by, what do you mean exactly by 85% accurate? I, I... Well, she said, you know, there were certain lines that are uh, not the uh, proper length. So the perspective is off a little bit. There is an angle that is different there uh, is a possibility that there are two better choices for zeta reticuli one and two and so uh but aside from that the uh, her her analysis i thought was very interesting and uh i saw that on youtube i do not know if it's still up it was when i when the book was published, the update to the book. She would not give her name, or he would not give his name, whatever it is. There, <laughs> uh, there wasn't a, a real voice uh, that 
was actually you, narrating When you this. say there were two better choices in Zeta-1, Zeta-2 reticuli, do you, do you have specific stars in mind, or were there stif- specific stars pointed out? I think that uh, she did not state what those stars are, but I'm going from memory, and it's been quite a while. So I just wrote a brief overview and gave the link so that readers would be able to visit that and watch the video themselves and listen to the narration. So uh, the information in the book will get you to the the YouTube video where this astronomer, astrophysicist was uh, talking about this? Yes, yes, but I tried it recently and I don't know if it's been taken down or not. But um, so I wrote, her findings in the book. You can read her findings if you read the book. I'm not going to uh, give away all of the the new chapter, Kevin. I've given a little bit. That's all I'm going to give. Well, I know I know how you feel because I in in uh, the book that I just had come out, uh, UFOs in the Deep State. I always feel when I'm talking to other hosts. I'm giving away too much and people aren't going to want to buy the book to read uh, all the ancillary information that fits into it. So I understand your reticence there. Absolutely. To provide too much information. Yes, my <laughs> I do not want to upset my publisher. They went to a great deal of effort to uh, have their people work on the production of this book, the advertising, and I'm not going to disappoint them by giving away everything that's in the book. Well, let's move let's move on beyond the Benny and Barty Hill abduction. And I think I've expressed my opinions periodically that if there is alien abduction going on, I would expect it to be more like targets of opportunity. Barney and Betty Hill, Calvin uh, Parker and Charles Hickson, Travis Walton. Targets of opportunity, not longitudinal studies that go on for for decades. I always have thought this is um, the best way that it would happen. Um, but I, I, from from your research, you've been looking at the, uh, I guess, the longitudinal studies of people who talk about the abductions occurring over a period of years or decades. Yes, and and intergenerationally. Uh, we discovered that uh, 60% of our abductee group were aware that other family members had been taken. So it appears to be a genetic study, a longitudinal genetic study across generations. Well, when you say other mem- family members are, they're, they're aware of other family members, do we talk to the other family members and get their um, memories as well? Or is that kind of a taboo direction? Uh, Only if the other family members took part in the study. No one was forced to take part in these studies. Well, I I understood. I just wondered wondered if we had a great deal of data about the other family members as well. Uh, No, only that there was the uh, testimony that there were other family members. And we had Dr. Don C. Donderi, who... uh, is or is recently a retired psychologist, research psychologist from McGill University, uh, administer the American Personality 
instrument in order to determine uh, if the individuals who took part in this study were indeed uh, suffering from UFO abduction syndrome, if they were simulators, or if they uh, were members of the general public who were just hoaxing and knew nothing about UFOs, essentially. And so we had a core group of individuals who were identified as uh, having UFO abduction syndrome. And we discovered that they uh, had commonalities at a much higher statistical level than the experiencers in common. And what I'm saying is all of the experiencers are those who took part in the study. The abductee group uh, is, was another phase of the study. So we did a comparison between their responses with the rest of the group. Did we, did we, did you look at, um, or, or did you find many hoaxes, many people lying about their experiences? Yes, I did, Kevin. I was very disappointed because I had trick questions in there um, that would identify the hoaxers. And I had to, between the people who didn't complete the test and those who uh, were identified as hoaxers, there were about 60. We were only left with 516. That, so uh, you, had a, you, had a, you had a fairly high percentage of people who were faking their abduction experiences then. They were either faking it or they uh, thought they were Maybe they just thought they were abductees and they were not. They didn't have the characteristics. Um, you know, they were saying that they were eating lunch with the ETs and they were uh, praying with ETs and they were um, doing things with ETs that uh, no one has ever reported as far as our knowledge is concerned. Well, I, I find that interesting, and, and I find that I was um, distressed to learn about how many people lie about their experiences. There's a book called Stolen Valor, which I'm, I'm sure you're unfamiliar with, that deals with uh, people who claim to be Vietnam veterans and their experiences in Vietnam. And it turns out a great number of people who have told the most horrific stories turned out not to have been uh, in combat, had not been in Vietnam, and had not been in the military. And i I, I just found it difficult to believe there'd be so many people out there lying about something like that. With the with the Vietnam service, you can uh, check records. You can get their military service records or find out if they have military service records to discover whether or not they're inventing their tales. But in something like this, you do not have a, a database that uh, can confirm their presence one way or another. I, it, it just seems like it's a very hard task to to go through especially when uh, you're you're identifying people who are lying about it yes and you know that was difficult because uh, the MUFON's experiencer research team had interviewed these individuals and referred those that they believed uh, were probably experiencers of ET contact to uh, take this test and so uh, 
the people that I worked on this with, I had uh, two people with doctorates and uh, one with a master's degree and, and some who were uh, lay researchers. And we had to develop ways of identifying the, uh, the hoaxers or the wannabes. And so in, in the questionnaire, we, we used a made up word to, and asked them, is this word familiar with you in your contact case? And, you know, and, and uh, we, uh, we found people who said yes, and they were checked off the list. And then when we were done with that, Dr. Don Derry, as part of phase two of the study, uh, gave, administered the American personality inventory. So we went to great lengths to try to identify the individuals who appeared to be the real abductees. Well, we're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, I want to ask you about sleep paralysis, because I know that there's an overlap between sleep paralysis and some of the abduction stories. And it, and it seems to me that that might confound your, your study as well. And so we'll, we'll explore that when we come back. I did want to say that my latest book, The UFOs in the Deep State, has been published just uh, about a month ago. And it's a discussion of the ways that the deep state, deep state has kept the real story of UFOs out of the public arena. So if you get a chance, head on over to Amazon.com, take a look at it. And if you uh, have read the book and you like the book, please rate it because that always helps out. And I also wanted to mention there are some other fine programs about the paranormal on the Exxon Broadcast Network at xzbn.net or what is it? xzbn.net if you happen to be in Canada or in, the, in other parts of the uh, former British Empire. So take a look at the listings at the side and you'll find some programs. My favorite, of course, is A Different Perspective. And we will be back right after this with Kathleen Martin talking more about UFO abductions. with Kathleen Martin we're talking now we're talking alien abductions alien experiences and that sort of thing uh, when we went away I mentioned sleep paralysis I investigated a case back in 1976 in Utah very nice woman who said that the aliens had come into the house to abduct her I think it's the first time anybody had reported that I think I actually reported that first before anybody else in a saga magazine article I'm now convinced that it was an episode of sleep paralysis, and it's based on my re-examination of my uh, interviews with her, the, the manuscript, uh, I mean, the uh, transcript of the interviews, the way Dr. Harder conducted the various sessions and the things that he had said. One of the things he said, by the way, Kathleen, was that he was interested in validating the Betty Hill abduction during that. And what would happen is, uh, in between sessions, and this took place over four or five days, 
he would mention things to her. And I remember him talking about Betty Hill and how she had had a, believe she had uh, uh, an examination aboard the craft. And in the very next session, the woman talked about a, uh, an examination in the craft. I am absolutely convinced this was sleep paralysis, giving everything that I know. You and I talked about this once before, sleep paralysis. And I, yes. I, and you were developing protocols to separate sleep paralysis from actual abductions. So the question becomes, uh, on your, your study, uh, did you run into sleep paralysis much? And if so, how did you determine it was sleep paralysis and not an abduction or vice versa? Well, we uh, asked people, have you had the experience where you have woken up unable to move anything except for your eyes? You sh saw shadowy figures uh, or a shadowy figure uh, near where you were lying. And this, you'll be interested in these statistics, Kevin. 74% of the entire experiencer group, 516, said yes. 90% of the abductee group said yes. But then we asked the question, were you awake? And did you observe uh, non-human entities entering your environment? And then did you experience paralysis? And what the uh, statistics we have on that is uh, among the experiencer group of overall, only 36% had been awake. Among the abductee group, 60% were awake. So and I that thought, tell, that was interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. Um, how many of the people remembered the abduction experience other than the, the sort of the sleep paralysis scenario uh, without the introduction of hypnotic regression? Nearly everyone remembered part of it, Kevin. Um, they might have remembered being on a table. They might have remembered uh, a craft in close proximity, uh, non-humans in their environment, uh, that sort of thing. So there were spotty memories uh, and often some kind of physical evidence in terms of patterned, marks on the body. I keep a catalog of those highly unusual marks on the body. I'm not certain why they are made. Uh, some of them will fluoresce under a black light. Uh, so we have that as well. So um, we do have some evidence to go along with uh, the, the idea that these people were awake when this occurred. I will not work with anyone under hypnosis uh, unless they do have conscious recall of the experience. And they can tell me a general time frame. We can, we can uh, pin down the date in hypnosis. And then I can check it out to see if indeed it was the day of the week and the day of the month that they stated. But uh, it is something that I am very concerned about. I would never want to lead anyone in hypnosis. And I'm not a person who would hypnotize anyone unless I'd investigated their case. And I believed that it was real. 
I'm, I'm not a big fan of hypnosis now as a research tool uh, from all we've learned about hypnosis in the past. Uh, I know when I was working with Jim Harder, uh, he told me that people can't lie under hypnosis. They can. And, yeah, I was going to say we, we've learned that that's not true. And they can't be forced to do anything they wouldn't normally do uh, as a hypnotic uh, suggestion. And we found out that that's not true. So there's all kinds of problems with hypnosis. I think as a therapeutic tool, hypnosis may be very valuable. But I think as a research tool, it's not very good at all. Um, it's too easy to inadvertently lead someone under hypnosis. And you have to be very careful on the way you ask the questions and, and your reactions to the questions to make sure you're not leading the, the subject into an arena they may not have experienced. Uh, you're aware of all of that, of course. Oh, of course. I I have studied hypnosis for a long time. On my website, you'll find uh, an article on a research study I did uh, back in the 90s over a summer period at the university on a small stipend uh, that included all of the academic studies I could find on hypnosis. And then I thought to round it out, I should study and become a hypnotherapist, which I did. And then I went on years later to uh, take the quantum healing hypnosis technique uh, training as well. And I'm a master level at that. But I always prefer to use forensic uh, hypnosis, whether it's therapeutic and, and always when I work with somebody, it's not just for research. I don't believe that it should just be for research. I think that there, there definitely has to be uh, a therapeutic part of it because if it's just for research, you can leave that person traumatized. And that is absolutely something that you don't want to do. Well, I understand that point of view, but doesn't sometimes the research aspect of it and the therapeutic aspect of it come into collision? Not for me, not in the technique that I've developed. And I've developed a special technique um, using forensic hypnosis where uh, I don't ask any leading questions. I only build upon what the person has already said. Now, if the person is reliving something that's really terrifying, then I can move them away. I can give them suggestions. It's in the past. It will remain in the past. And if they want to forget it, they can forget it again. This, that is a technique that Dr. Benjamin Simon used with Betty and Barney because he hypnotized them separately. And uh, he reinstated amnesia at the end of each session so that they couldn't share information. And also because from time to time, their degree of trauma was so intense that it could cause further uh, emotional damage if they remembered all of it at once. So I, I learned a lot from Dr. Simon as well. When do um, you do, uh, I'm, I'm struggling here with the, to form the question properly. Um, is there a limit to the number of hypnotic regression sessions you will engage in with a specific person? Uh, I usually do one or two. The technique requires uh, a full day 
with interviews and uh, and then a, uh, a two to three hour period. We have the induction, we have the hypnosis session, and then we have the meeting after that session. So well, what, what I'm asking, by that what I'm, time, the individual will know if this was an experience that was real, that they had, that they remember, or or if it was something else, if if they can't recall it. And I also offer suggestions that will uh, reduce the possibility of confabulation. Well, I, I guess I, what I was getting at is I know David Jacobs talked about doing 30, 35 sessions, hip, various hypnotic regression sessions with one or two individuals. And, and it seemed that that was quite excessive. And I wondered, from what you're saying, you have a limit to the number of sessions you would conduct under hypnosis? I don't think that anyone would need 35 sessions. Once they know what has happened, then uh, they uh, are able to, to heal and to integrate this. And uh, some go on and just want to forget about it. Others go on and, and want to explore it and learn more about it. So... Uh, no, I would never do that many sessions with anyone. The the most, uh, the greatest number of sessions that I've ever done with one individual is probably I don't know around six, six or so sessions, under ten, and this is over a number of years, maybe over a ten-year period. Well, let me ask you a, a, a really nosy question. And, and uh, Russ Estes and Bill Cohn and I have caught a lot of flack for the statistic. But we interviewed, I think it was 316 abductees, experiencers. And we found an extraordinarily high number of people who identified as homosexual or bisexual uh, or asexual in the sample, I, it was much larger than you would expect in the overall population. And that suggested to us, maybe there are questions we could ask, uh, is there a, a, a number of, uh, an extraordinary number of people who are left-handed? Are there extraordinary number of people who have a certain blood type? Uh, college education comes to mind. Uh, um, phys physical uh, characteristics that are not uh, readily visible. Did, have you found anything like that in your research? Well, we didn't uh, ask questions about sexual preference, but uh, we were looking for uh, health problems, specific health problems that might be related to contact. And uh, we found out that 53% had uh, health-related problems. Of that, 49% of those had migraine headaches. 45% had had a number of nosebleeds. 44% uh, had chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. And 18% had fibromyalgia. For it is significantly raised on those uh, migraine headaches and on chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. With, uh, in the general population, chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome is less than 1%. Yet it's 40, it, a medical diagnosis of 44% among those that we interviewed. 
So you found some common factors, medically related factors. And I was looking for, and, and, and that kind of answers the question of, of things that are not readily visible. You can't look at somebody and say, this person suffers from migraines, for example, which is why I, I was wondering about that, because we had suggested that maybe these sorts of things should be examined to see if there are other such commonalities. Uh, I'm talking with Kathleen Martin here. Her website, for those of you who are, who are interested, and I'm sure it's everyone, is Kathleen-Marden, all lowercase, dot com. And you can take a look at uh, some of her re research there. Uh, I can be found at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. The latest activity there has been, of course, about uh, Jacques Vallée and his book, um, Trinity, and the problems we've had with that, and some other interesting UFO-related materials. I'll be doing something about uh, drone sightings that may impact the coming study from the government uh, about UAPs uh, in, in the next couple of days on the blog as well, for those of you who are interested in looking at where this may go and why we think of it as Condon 2.0. Uh, you are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and we'll be right back after this, so please stick around. of you who are interested, I almost forgot to start the clock on this segment. I don't know why I should mention that, but I just thought I would. Um, I'm here with Kathleen Martin. We're talking about alien abductions, and one of the questions that comes up to my mind, and I know these experiments have been attempted, do you have any um, physical evidence? Do you have videotapes? Do you have uh, anything like that, In especially the people who are talking about uh, longitudinal studies, uh, setting up some kind of way of videotaping something or gathering some additional information uh, about this that would help corroborate the abduction experience? I do. I, uh, over the years, have been able to collect uh, a number of uh, different things, including um, the the alien symbols seen on the craft, uh, the markings on the body, I have uh, a photograph of what looks like a little elf standing in a doorway. I have uh, a, a video of an orb that entered the home of an experiencer. I was the main investigator on this case. He had been diagnosed with lymphoma. The orb came down through the ceiling slid down the wall, uh, flew across the room, hovered briefly over his body, put down iridescent tendrils, dove into the body, and uh, he slept for 12 hours. And when he woke up, he the nodes on his neck were no longer visible. He went in and uh, a couple of weeks later for surgery. They were removed, but all they removed is 
four tiny necrotic nodes, uh, no sign of cancer. So I, they, I have a medical doctor who has all of that information. Uh, also, I've worked on a big case, uh, three individuals, two women who are paranormal investigators who wanted to do an experiment with an individual who was a confirmed experiencer. So uh, I was able to find a confirmed experiencer who wasn't too far away from the, those individuals and they obtained permission to meet on his property. Uh, they set their equipment up. They're very, very good, paranormal, well-educated uh, and highly respected in the, their field. They had all of their equipment set up. They don't carry cell phones or um, phones or purses or anything like that when they uh, go on a case. They do the history of the land, the genealogy of the person who lives on the land. They had a Bell and Howell camera set up uh, that was running on its own. They were in a different part of the yard. When the experiencer pointed out what he believed was a craft coming in, the moon was almost full that night. So uh, these paranormal investigators are attempting to ask questions and obtain EVPs, electronic voice phenomena. And uh, the next thing they knew they were feeling sick to the stomach. They're all standing up. The, the equipment they had was on the ground behind them. Uh, they were sort of reeling. They picked up all of their equipment. They went inside the experiencer's house. And his wife said, where have you been? I've been looking for you. And uh, it was 1 o'clock in the morning. The last they had known it was around 11 o'clock in the evening. They'd gone out at, at 10 o'clock and everything had been set up before that. So it was somewhere between 10 and 11. Um, so then uh, I interviewed them, but one of them was so traumatized by this event that she I ended up referring her uh, to a psychotherapist so she could work through that trauma. She was having a difficult time. The other one was not. And then uh, finally, uh, they were able to review their uh, video evidence, the EVPs and everything that they'd collected. Well, in that video evidence, it shows a light beam uh, that comes across the screen. It's kind of a bluish purple. And it's not like a light, it's more like a laser light might be, but it's, it has breaks in it. And in one of those breaks, um, it appears that there is uh, an entity that is dropping off that beam and is not fully materialized. It materializes, becomes solid as it moves toward the ground. There were other entities recorded as well. And I have been doing a frame-by-frame -frame analysis on that part of the tape. There's, there's much more to this, but uh, I, I find this very fascinating in, in terms of 
uh, evidence of non-humans. They don't look like the greys. They, their appearance is highly unusual. Uh, one of them might be uh, robotic. Uh, it lifts up off the ground. It has one of those blue lights in one hand, like the beam, and a white light in the other hand. It was sitting on the ground. It lifts into the air, knees bent. It appears to have something like a backpack of some kind on the back. The neck is bent. It's kind of long and, and bent forward with the head attached to it there. There is uh, a like a metal, almost like an antenna uh, frame across the, the top of its head on its forehead, a metal band. And then perpendicular to that is another band that goes up and then it goes back over the head. And as this entity uh, glides across the screen, the lights are moving back and forth and the entity's head is moving back and forth as well. Uh, it really extraordinary, kind of gave me the creeps when I was looking at it. I, it, it almost looked like a dog face to me rather than anything that I ever expected to see. And then there is a large entity, um, probably human size or larger, in, in front of the camera. There is uh, a very big flash of light where this entity shows up. And it appears to have come from the craft itself. And it's standing in front of the camera. It's dressed in black. It has like accordion type uh, clothing on its arms. And it's wearing some kind of headgear. I can see what appears to be a chiseled nose. And that's all I can see of the face because of where the headgear is. Um, I, I wish I had better technology than I have in order to do this frame-by-frame frame analysis. But still, to me, it was fascinating. And uh, it's it shows that something was there. And well, that know, it appears to be somehow related to craft. But some of it looks like fairies, <laughs> which is very well, strange. Well, you, you know, you've talked a lot about witnesses and things like that. What we have very little in the way of names and there's very little in the way for us to um, validate what you say. I mean, I, it's a criticism leveled at us when we talk about some of the Roswell cases and we can't give out names because we promised the people. So I understand that sort of thing, but you have to understand that sort of a criticism. Is there, when are we gonna be able to see this this information or this tape that, that uh, was recovered? Well, uh, one of those witnesses, Pam Nance, is going to be speaking about that this year. She's already done a radio show. Of course, she can't show the film on a radio show. Um, she uh, is uh, has given me permission to present this information at an experiencer conference later this year that I'm going to be doing in northern Michigan. You will find that on my website. So. I, I do have you'll be presenting to show the, that. you'll be showing the tape or the the video at that time 
I'll be showing the video and I'll be showing stills from the video. Yes. So that, and, and we now know it's the name of the woman. So, and I, I don't want everybody contacting her to find out the validity of it because I know how that can just overwhelm somebody. Bill Brazel told me that at one point, um, and you, you could call direct assistance in, in New Mexico and say, Bill Brazel, and they'd give you the phone number. Um, he's since passed away, so you don't have to worry about doing that. But he would say he'd get dr calls from drunks in bars at two and three o'clock in the morning, wanting to know if the information about the what he had experienced in Roswell was true. And there are people, I understand the need to validate the information from everybody. I, I get that, especially in today's environment. But uh, we need to be able to examine the evidence ourselves to make sure that there isn't anything um, that we can, we can, there's no way we can't explain it. I mean, there, there's something there that we would might see and say, well, that explains this sort of thing. I mean, there's a need for us all to, to validate the information. I hope you understand that. Well, and I also understand that's, that uh, some people uh, are very willing to dismiss any evidence very quickly. And I've encountered that uh, before as well. So I would hope that anyone who would look at the evidence would give an, uh, would ev evaluate it honestly and in an unbiased manner. And the other thing in today's environment with social media, you can say all kinds of nasty things about people without worrying about consequences as you hide behind your keyboard, which is kind of a disgusting thing. Yes. Uh, Kathleen, I think we've run out of time here. I don't know what more to do. <laughs> I can't expand the hour any longer. I appreciate you taking time to chat with us. The website is Kathleen-Marden, all lowercase, dot com. Uh, get an idea of where she's going to be, where she's going to appear, where you can see this evidence, for example. The book is called Captured. It's updated, and it uh, discusses the Barney and Bailey Hill case and other, I guess, other abduction scenarios, so you can get an idea of what's going on there. And uh, I like to always point out that my book, uh, UFOs in the Deep State, is available. I'd like to see it make number one on Amazon just for the hell of it, you know? Uh, so if you're interested in that sort of thing, hey, help me out on that. We got up to number 12 last week at one point, and I was hoping we could just nudge it a little bit more, but we didn't quite make it. Uh, this is kind of a book that looks at the way the bureaucrats the deep state, the bureaucrats who, who go from administration to administration to administration seem to control everything that's going on. And we have care, caretakers in the uh, presence of the president, for example. Um, but everybody knows the president is going to be gone in eight years at a maximum and four years at a minimum uh, for the most part. So if you get a chance, take a look at UFOs in the deep state. I think it's going to give you, dare I say it, a different perspective on uh, the UFO phenomena and the way things are going. And I also wanted to mention, again, that there's a lot of fine programs about the paranormal that you can find on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So go to the Exxon Broadcast Network at uh, website at uh, xzbn.net, and you'll find a listing of the programs, who the hosts are, and I'm sure you're going to find some other programs that will be as, just as interesting as this one. Uh, this, of course, is my favorite program of them all. And while I'm on the kick, if you get a chance, take a look at uh, the best of Project Blue Book. I think it'll give you a different perspective, again, on the uh, way the Air Force conducted their investigations into the UFO phenomenon. 
and take a look at Encounter in the Desert about the Lonnie Zamora case. And I think that's one of the better UFO cases that we have because we have multiple chains of evidence with the sighting, multiple witnesses, we have uh, landing traces and all of that sort of thing. So take a look at that book. But once again, um, take a look at the blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and there's a lot of information on that uh, on that site for you, for those of you who are interested. So you have been listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. I'll be back in about 167 hours with Nick Redfern. So uh, stick around for that or not, and we will chat with you later. 